universal laws for lackeys. Context is for kings. Hey everybody, welcome to Trek Trudge Discovery episode two or three. Let's call it three. Let's call it episode three. Yeah. Correspond with the episode. Uh, context is for kings. Great title. My name is Byron Hussey, hosting duties as always for the last episode and this one. Um, and I'm joined by James Jeeves. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good, thanks. Uh, Ready to talk some Trek. So, this is the third episode of um, Discovery, Star Trek Discovery. Mm-hmm. And this is the first episode where we're sort of meeting the actual cast and crew of the uh, the program. So in a way, it kind of mirrors the structure of the original series where they had the original pilot, the cage, and then the, the subsequent pilot, the man trap. Mm-hmm. Which, I was, I was not captains. aware of that, but it sounds potentially like a deliberate callback because yeah. it seems that this uh, series is much more rooted in the uh, original series canon. Um, or at least in terms of sort of thematic callbacks. There's a lot of uh, references. Certainly set in the same time period. So that's... That's that's, that's true. That's the well that they're going to. Um, I think... I don't think I touched on this in the first episode um, or in the first podcast, but... And I think... Don't get me wrong... I think this series has a lot of potential and I really like it so far. I think it was a huge mm-hmm. mistake to, to go back in time. Like I, I I feel like Hollywood is not learning not to do prequels. Like yeah. they need to stop. It's not yeah. it's not an intelligent way to tell a story to start early and work towards a point you're already familiar with. It no. destroys all dramatic tension. Like why think, don't they, um, why won't they learn this? I think the problem with Trek though is is oh you could be you could do a prequel and you could be stuck in the sixties or you could do a, a sequel and you could be stuck in the nineties and either way it's like you're kind of hamstrung. Yeah, but it's like okay, there's a canon. They're they're ostensibly trying to stick to the canon. Um, obviously there's some some deviation, but it's like why not just yeah. pick up the story in the future? Why not like, yeah. go a hundred years more into the future? Like that's what we eh. did with the Next Generation, and everybody loved that. If you do that, you don't even really need to, really need to worry about continuity, right? You just make new stuff eh. up. Word of advice, CBS. Uh, yeah, we've already they've already spent <laughs> like a hundred million dollars not doing that. So <laughs> uh, maybe uh, maybe we just take what take what they're giving us. I think there is potential that if this is successful, maybe they could like actually do an, another series. Yeah. Um, which is like 
around the time of or after Next Generation. That would be fun. And you know what? It's enjoyable enough in the meantime. So in this episode, we meet... um, Captain Lorca. Captain Lorca, played by what? Jason Isaacs. Jason Isaacs, the um, actor who played Lucius Malfoy in Famous Wizard series. Do you think that um, Captain Lorca also knows magic? Uh, Yes, he's a mystical fellow, very mysterious. Yeah. And um, Lorca has sort of arranged for um, Michael Burnham to Mm. be on his crew, seemingly by sabotaging a... um, And murder. And murdering. Yeah, which I, 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 I assume we'll get some further explanation of, but perhaps I'm being too charitable for assuming that. Yeah. Because well, the, 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 the shuttle that she comes over on with some other prisoners uh, has a pilot, and the pilot uh, goes outside to fix some, some problems and just gets swept away and presumably dies. Collateral damage in the war. Yeah. But Lorca seems to be sort of an amoral, um, sh- sort of, sort of shadowy, mysterious um, figure. Yeah. And well, it's 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 funny you say that. Yeah. Um, uh, because the the title of the episode is particularly relevant here. I think context is for kings is uh, seeming to me to be a, a reference to the. Captain Kirk style of leadership where the context of your situation dictates your decision making. So, you know, mm-hmm. if in the situation context dictates that you violate the prime directive, violate the prime directive. Right. Who cares? Yeah. Um, and th- that's always been the Captain Kirk way of doing things. I, I know this because I read The Ethics of Star Trek, which is a great book, not mm-hmm. official. Um, and so ca- what Captain Lorca seems to me to represent is... Uh, like a kind of uh, dark reflection of that, where mm-hmm. it's it's the same thing, but it's made to look scary instead. So we're we're kind of deconstructing that that Kirk leadership style and um, maybe uh, analyzing it as as uh, uh, some of the, with some of the scary implications that it could have. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly unprecedented, unprecedented. I can't say it. <laughs> Just we'll never be able to say it. Uh, in Star Trek, to have the captain of the ship not be a not be the protagonist, but certainly also potentially be like an an uh, I would I don't want to say like an antagonist. I think that's probably it wouldn't it probably won't go there. But like to have him be like certainly not one of the good guys. You know. Well, I'll 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 tell you right now, you're wrong because okay. in fact you might recall the '90s were very edgy. Mm-hmm. And Captain Cisco, in that series Deep Space Nine, uh, did do some very edgy things, particularly in the episode In the Pale Moonlight. But was he not still at least sort of the front and center kind of main guy of the series? Oh, yeah. I mean, he was the lead, yes. But, yeah. Like, he, he poisoned a planet in that episode. But- 
That was and not for really the, very good reason. The Dominion War. Oh, something like that. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so I guess I was wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, I think the the virtue of this this series discovery is that we're getting to update that uh, a little bit, so it's not quite '90s dark and edgy. Mm-hmm. It's 2010s dark and edgy. Yeah. So which I think is different. So Michael Burnham is brought onto the ship. She's given a roommate. Uh, what did you yeah. think of the uh, roommate? Um, look, I mean, she's annoying, but I think she's probably meant to be annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think the the interesting thing about Burnham in this episode is she has different hair to the previous two episodes, and um, practically you can say, well, it's you know she's been in prison, so she hasn't had access to all the the hair styling that comes with being a, a senior officer on a starship. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, on a more subtextual level, um, she now has kind of natural African American hair, mm-hmm. whereas uh, previously she had what I, I think the slang term is good hair mm-hmm. in the African American community, which means it's been straightened, it's been treated, you know. Um, and I, I, I would suspect that this is a deliberate choice um, by the filmmakers because uh, uh, this is this is something that. Um, uh, people of color supposedly face stigma for for um, mm-hmm. having their natural hair, and it's seen as being unprofessional. Right. Yeah. So it's a, it's it's just a little statement. It's interesting that these phenomena, these sociological phenomena, have carried into the twenty uh, second century. Is it the twenty second century? I think we're in the twenty third, twenty two hundred century. Um, Although I, I suppose but... it's possible that it's like. Not for exactly the same reasons, but it's still sort of a mirror. Of yeah, the same. like I don't think anyone in the episode cares. It's yeah. just uh, a little like uh, subtextual shorthand for us here in the 21st century. Yeah, I think. Um, oh, uh, uh, one other thing from when she's getting transported over is she was with a bunch of prisoners, and um, uh, a little canon connection is that. One of them says that there was a rumor that the reason that they're being transferred is that their prison mine uh, was destroyed when it went piezoelectric, which is actually the same thing that happened to Data's pen pal in the episode Pen Pals hmm. in TNG. Yeah. Do you know what so, piezoelectric means? Oh, it's uh, something to do with crystals becoming electrically charged, I think. Oh, jeez. That sounds really bad. <laughs> yeah, well... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, techno babble aside, one one does appreciate uh, that they they make these little canon connections everywhere. Yeah, it is it is a nice touch. Um, again, it's I guess it's strange for for some people that there's this attention to canon. I guess I guess I think I was listening to a podcast about this, mm. um, and somebody. Basically, I forget what the podcast was or who was talking, but they were like, "I guess, I guess, basically, they're just gonna throw throw Easter eggs at us, but in mm. sort of significant ways, deviate from the canon at the same time." Yeah, that could be essentially what's happening. Yeah, I guess so. And you know what? I'll take it because yeah. in comparison, what to what the previous strategy was, which was just 
let's write a story that we have to write and fuck whatever happened previously. I, mm-hmm. I, I prefer this approach because it feels more integrated. You know, yeah, like, I agree with that. Th- I don't want to go back to the writing for the, the motion picture where it was just, oh, we've got a set piece we need to have, so let's write it in. Mm-hmm. Oh, Spock has to get in an EV suit. Oh, we have to have a wormhole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want that. Um, hey, something else that's cool. Uh, when they first get onto the ship, they meet uh, Lieutenant Landry, who's like a security officer or something. She's played by an actress called Rekha Sharma, who prior mm-hmm. to this had appeared on Star Trek Continues. Interesting. Yeah, so she's, as a character uh, on there. So she's in the kind of Trek uh, EU fan Well, EU. Star Trek, yeah, the fan EU, because Star Trek yeah. continues isn't canon. Um, yeah. And this isn't, this isn't the first time that this has happened. I think the first time was when James Cawley, who plays Captain Kirk in uh, Star Trek Phase 2, a.k.a. Star Trek New Voyages, he played a crew member of the Enterprise in the 2009 movie. I think mm-hmm. that's the first instance of a of a fan actor making the jump to being an official cast member. So is this woman um is she actually a fan or is she somebody that was hired by fans? Um presumably she is a fan because you okay. wouldn't you wouldn't do Star Trek continues if you weren't a fan. I have seen the episode in question that she appeared in. She was like a guest um appearance and uh it was pretty good if I recall. It was like a time travel episode. Uh, where they they did some old makeup mm-hmm. on Captain Kirk, so that's fun. But beside the point, I guess. In this, she's like a no nonsense security officer, and she's she's very good. Yeah. Uh, in in insofar as you know that role is, you know, permits her to be. Mm-hmm. Um. So uh, yeah, it, thing things aren't uh, very pleasant on the on the Starship Discovery for. Uh, for poor old Michael Burnham, because uh, you know she's basically held responsible for the the six months of uh, you know catastrophe that have um, occurred since since her her infamous mutiny on yeah. board the Shenzhou. So, do you know, or do you have an idea of why people are holding her to be so responsible for all this? Well, like I, this seems very intuitive for me because we do this all the time. Like I'm thinking like. Hillary Clinton in post 2016, you know, like it's very easy to blame her for every single thing that went wrong when, you know, that, that entire election was a clusterfuck. Mm-hmm. That's, that's perhaps a, a very partisan um, analogy, but like you get what I'm saying. Like it's very easy to pick out one person who's responsible uh, for things going wrong. And, in, yeah. you know, in this case, Burnham, you know, conducted the mutiny. As a result, the captain died, and then the Europa was destroyed, and presumably a bunch of people aboard the Shenzhou died as well. Mm-hmm. So you know, but and then did, the, and then the Klingon was, war stuff. Was the captain's death a result of the mutiny? Uh, it it preceded the mutiny. Yeah, I guess it's just impossible to uh, to know whether or not what would have happened if she hadn't mutinied. So she did something bad. Bad things happened. They happened at the same time. So it's probably fair to uh, link yeah. them. Okay. Too bad. Um, so uh, there's a bunch of fucking around on the ship. Um, cool martial arts sequence. Yeah. But then we, uh, at a seemingly random moment, 
Um, Lieutenant Landry says uh, the captain wants to see you. Not sure why she picked that moment, but so we go to meet the captain, and he uh, has this kind of he has this defect of uh, light needs to change levels slowly around him, which seems very Bond villain to me. Mm-hmm. Like his eyes are sensitive because of a some battle wound or something. Yeah. Um, and of course, um, uh, Jason Isaacs is a very imposing actor. He typically plays villains, so clearly why they picked him for this morally ambiguous role, so that we kind of ooh, don't know whether to trust him. Think he's he's probably shifty. Um, and he's putting on a southern accent mm-hmm. in this, and uh, it took me a while. I thought like this is reminding me of someone. I think who it was reminding me of is President Underwood from House of Cards. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit of a little bit of <laughs> underwear. Getting that? Yeah. A little bit. Probably just because, you know, similar vintage of actor and um and a southern accent. There's probably not much more to do it. You think than it's that. do you think it's easier or more difficult for a British person to to do a southern accent versus like a whatever the sort of the I don't know what the term is for the sort of non regional American like, accent. It just depends on whether you're talking Southern or like, you know, cartoon character. Like right. uh, Yosemite Sam. Right. Yeah, the Yosemite Sam is probably easier than like a South Carolina accent mm-hmm. or something. Something more specific, I guess. Um, I'll say, I'll say, I'll say boy. Yeah. We also got... Um, uh, Michael Burnham ran into uh, Saru again. Mm. Awkward. Yeah, and also somebody else she ran into that I yeah, don't think we Rando had met from before. the crew. Yeah, her name is Kayla for the record, but uh, I I don't think we care at this point. Yeah, she's barely spoken, and but she does have a cool new cyborg implant now, so presumably she got horribly injured on board mm-hmm. the Shenzhou. Yeah, a little little uh, seven of nine ish. A little bit, yeah. Hmm. There's also a, uh, I think it's like the second officer, but there's somebody on the Discovery crew that looks just like um, Frieza from Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> Do you know anything about this alien character? I, I confess I don't. Um, okay. Information is sparse at this point. Yeah. On, on the memory alpha. I think that, that this might be a little bit of a problem with this show where it's like, it's not doing a very good job of letting us sort of telegraphing who the actual like main characters are going to be. Mm. Um, a lot of, a lot of people just kind of seem like extras. Um, yeah. And there are certainly a lot of extras in like the next generation and all Star Treks, but there were also mm. like, clearly you've got your wharf, you know, you've got your Dan mm-hmm. Troy, these are there are clearly some people that you obviously are paying attention to, um, and I'm yes, not sure who is in that category yet on this show. We'll figure it out. We'll get there. We'll figure out who's the Wesley. Yeah. We also meet the um, science. Um, science guy. Science guy. Who's the science guy? Um. Are you talking about up. Lieutenant Stamets? Yeah. Yeah, so he's a um, he's an astromycologist. Yes, and uh, believe it or not, named for a real guy. Really? Did you know that? 
No? Yes, there's a real mycologist named Paul Stamets who uh, Brian Fuller is clearly a fan of because there's also a character in um, Hannibal uh, named after Stamets who is another mushroom guy. That's weird. He's a mushroom serial killer. Hmm. <laughs> is, is Brian Fuller like really into like... Really into mushrooms. Mushrooms? Like yeah. hallucin- hallucinogenic mushrooms? Or just like eating yeah, well, that's, um, gourmet mushrooms? That's one of Stamets's things, I think. Um, he 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 does a lot of TED talks. He's like a he's kind of like a sexy mycologist. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he likes to promote the idea of fung like using fungus to reclaim um, like environmentally damaged areas. Like presumably, you could get fungus to like eat up oil. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the other thing is, I think he just likes to get high. Yeah. Who doesn't? Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. So oh, Stamets pal. is like, we don't, I think that he's, we don't, we don't learn this, but he's a gay character, right? He is? <laughs> I mean, I think they sort of Did telegraph it impression? a little bit, but I, I mean, I think I read somewhere that he's actually gay. Oh, but, is um, this the. The, the much vaunted gay character that we were I, promised. I think this is the gay character. Huh. Hmm. Um, well, he does have a very close friendship with another mycologist on board, the sister ship, the USS Glenn. Yeah. Um, I'll confess my gaydar didn't go off, but maybe I just need to recalibrate it. I think, um, I mean, there were just, there were just, I, I have no specific examples, but there were some line deliveries that seemed to me that they were, uh, at, at least attempting to be like a little, a little bit uh, yeah. flamey. <laughs> yeah, look, he's he's maybe a little bit lispy. <laughs> like a, I, I don't know, maybe maybe this is just the fact that it's like a straight actor trying to act gay or something, mm. and it's not working. Like it's not triggering <laughs> an actual gay man's gaydar. Is that what what might be occurring here? Uh, maybe. Uh, how do you know the actor's straight? I'm. I have no idea. Let's <laughs> we'll have um, to go to um, the uh, the um, orientation IMDb to mm. look this up. Uh, I think m- more to come on that, probably. Yeah. Well, more to come on on just about everything <laughs> in there. Uh, so, what else to talk about? Do we talk about roommate Cadet Tilly? Not in yeah, detail. We- but, you mentioned she's a, a little bit annoying. Yeah. Why would um, they give a mutineer prisoner prisoner a roommate? Look, so many questions. So many. Mm-hmm. Um, Cadet Tilly, I think, is maybe on the spectrum? Yeah, I think deliberately so. Like, it seems to be that right. they're, they're doing that on purpose. That's that's their, um, their representation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she mentions that she has chronic snoring, which surprisingly turns out to be Chekhov's gun, Chekhov's snoring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's because, uh, as as we learn when we're in engineering with Stamets, uh, it's that they use a breath scan to um, enter the engineering lab, which is locked off mysteriously. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, you know, for someone who, you know, arrives on the ship and doesn't want to rock the boat and is like, you know, oh, I, I want to pay my debt to society. I don't want to, you know, muck things up around here. Burnham sure is willing, you know, awfully prepared to potentially risk like a catastrophic containment breach or to, you know, otherwise cause some sort of similar catastrophe um, by breaking into the engineering lab by uh she, she gets a napkin and and puts uh like lets tilly drool onto it and mm-hmm. then uses a hyper spray to to fake the breath test yeah uh to get into the lab not to any purpose it doesn't doesn't really serve any like she doesn't learn anything other than yeah. that oh there's some sort of glowing fungus in here mm-hmm. uh i was just reading um the memory alpha and I just thought I'd drop in two interesting details in, in Luca's mm. uh, laboratory. There is the, there is a Gorn skeleton. Yeah. That's the, the little fan surfacey bits. And there's a Tribble, right? There's a Tribble. Yeah. On his and desk. there are also the bodies of two Cardassian voles. <sighs> Although this might be later in the episode because I don't think this is in his office, is it? I think it, yeah, it might be a little later. I confess yeah. I didn't actually spot the Gorn skeleton, but I don't care anyway. Yeah. Um, and the the Tribble, like, that shit just makes me roll my eyes, like, yeah. for heaven's sake. Um, remember, remember remember these guys? The Tribble. <laughs> eh? Makes me eh? noise. Eh, trickies. You know, do you remember the trouble with Tribbles, though? <laughs> they, they fucking breed and... And murder your ship by yeah. filling you up with. You don't have them on your ship for Maybe, this reason. Is it possible this was a neutered triple? Presumably, unless yeah. we're going to have that episode later. <laughs> if we're going to have a Harry Mudd episode, then we, we can maybe have a triples episode. Yeah. Um. So, uh, as 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 mentioned previously, we we get the old sister ship bit which is a clever way for them to reuse the sets mm-hmm. and the models. Yep. Uh, so the USS Glenn has been doing much better with their top secret, you know, uh, research. But as a result, they've, um, I guess they've, uh, oh, uh, tried to go too fast and mm-hmm. have encountered uh, consequences as a result. So they need to send an away mission over. Yeah. Um, and uh, on the way over, uh, Stamets, uh, Lieutenant Stamets, um, reveals that uh, he considers his scientific motives uh, to be at odds with Captain Lorca's uh, military motives. So, he, thus hinting at the at the conflict in this episode between, you know, is Starfleet uh, an organization that that seeks truth, or is it an organization that seeks to dominate? Mm-hmm. through military superiority right which has long been a a uh conflict in in star trek since ooh, maybe star trek 6 directed by nicholas meyer who is an executive producer on this series whoa connections mm. connect the dots yeah and in fact earlier than that as well but you know star Can trek we... 2 in fact also directed by meyer could we also mention um, there's a sort of a motif running through this episode of um, Alice in Wonderland? Land. Yeah. 
That's um, it seems random upon first viewing, but actually uh, that has precedence in canon as well. The animated series, in fact, you'd never believe. Um, Spock mentions uh, at one point that his mother likes or liked the the Lewis Carroll uh, works, his works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and, uh, there's precedent. And, uh, Michael Burnham actually mentions that her mother read it to her and her brother. Yeah. Which who, who that who brother? Who that he? brother? I think that's the first veiled reference to Spock, right? Yep. Don't think he came up. All all pointy ears. Yeah. So important. He's just a, such an important man. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you ever think that like since Spock was half Vulcan that one of his ears should have been non-pointy. Mm, that's a that's a good. Mm. Yeah. Like half really his, should have considered that. Half only half of his ears, one out of two would be, you know, that's how genes work, right? <laughs> you know what I have considered is that um they probably made a like had a missed opportunity when they designed the rest of the Vulcans because so if you have a like a half human, half alien uh character, then you can have like a Balana Torres who mm-hmm. has the has the ridges like a Klingon, but they seem to be kind of smoother and shallower because she's, you know, halfway between Klingon and human. Mm-hmm. And yet all other Vulcans pretty much just look like Spock. He's the prototype mm-hmm. for Vulcans. So you think they could have made their ears much pointier? Much pointier. Like, like rabbit have, ears. I mean, they could have given them some like Romulan forehead ridges, maybe. Mm-hmm. I agree. Eh. So the technology that they're working on appears to be um, fungal spores that sort of have interdimensional capabilities. <sighs> Um, it's, it's a bit I was of a getting stretch, a, huh? I was getting a little bit of a like a midi chlorians vibe from this. <laughs> yeah, uh, a little bit. They're the intergalactic web of life that binds us together, and yeah. it's the it's the originator of all life. Mm-hmm. I don't actually case, it's fungus. I don't actually mind the midi chlorian um, aspect of episode one. No, I don't either. I and think that, it's great. One of the I think interesting sort of interpretations of it that has emerged more recently mm. i think is that it was like it's something that the the jedi uh are interested in but it was like qui-gon in particular was sort of obsessed with them and that's why it was such a, like a uh uh emphasized point in episode one because of hmm. qui-gon not because it was like this is the real explanation of the force that's you know? uh interesting but wrong okay <laughs> I've I've read it. I I can't really uh, speak to the. Uh... I mean, like Obi Wan can like instantly recall uh, Yoda's midi chlorian count, which indicates to me that it's it's not just. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he is Qui Gon's Padawan, but um, it, it seems like I mean, something that's generally known about. Something it's possible that it's something that he focuses on. No, but I mean, I think I think it was like well understood and known among the Jedi, but I think sort of maybe part of the reinterpretation is that like this was part of the downfall of the Jedi getting too kind of 
mechanistic with something that was supposed to be like more spiritual. No. <laughs> and that Qui-Gon was like sort of the standard bearer of this kind of uh, thinking. But uh, again, it sounds eh, like a... No. <laughs> so that... Sorry, prequel revisionists. So it's just, it's, I mean, I, I know it wasn't intended as like that as such. Anyway. Well, uh, in this canon, uh, it turns out the midichlorians can make you teleport right. across uh, pan-galactic distances. Um, and uh, Captain Lorca uh, demonstrates to this this to um, uh, Burnham, and uh, she she gets to stand in a little chamber and flash through a bunch of planetscapes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more little tiny canon references in here. I, I don't know how interesting they are really, but there's a there's an obelisk in the background of one that was in TOS as well, and it's like a, an ancient alien thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's, that's that, I guess. Um, uh, an interesting thing that, um, Stamet says about the, these, these, um, mycelial bloom, blooms, what are they? Mm-hmm. Mycelial, whatever blooms. they are. Um, Sounds right, I think. He says that they're the progenitors of panspermia, thus indicating that they are indeed the origin of all life. Ah, Interesting. Yeah, and um, I mean, we're we're perpetually kind of um, uh, grasping for an explanation for why all the aliens are bipedal, mm-hmm. uh, which we got that uh, perhaps unsatisfactory explanation in in TNG, that mm-hmm. one episode. Uh, but that, you know, here here could be a a supplementary explanation. Right. So it's all all life came from these fungus things and so yes it's perhaps plausible that it could Mm. all evolve in roughly the same way different locations or perhaps not um uh what i should say though uh uh is that the the scientific name prototaxites deleviatori uh the prototaxites are are a real genus of fungi but they've been extinct since oh i want to say the mesozoic era but Mm -hmm. um we have fossils of these giant fungus towers that uh, for a long time, I think scientists weren't quite able to figure out what exactly they were. They couldn't figure out whether they were fungi or algae or, mm-hmm. or what. And they're like the size of trees. Cool. Um, so that's fun. But anyway, Stella viatori, the species name, um, uh, is uh, Latin for uh, essentially star travelers fungus. Or, huh. Well, star travelers. Yeah, so it's a it's a Star Trek, Star Trek fungus. Yeah, that makes sense. That's uh, prop that that right there is probably the, the inspiration for this whole idea. There you go. Yeah, I think this is probably. I've been wondering particularly uh, during this episode which elements of the Brian Fuller, uh, you know, pitch were were retained uh, mm-hmm. subsequent to his de- departure. I feel like the fungus thing has to be his yeah. because he's clearly a fungus guy mm-hmm. and it's just yeah. too quirky I think you're right so um, they board the sister ship which has apparently mm. been uh, being marauded by a giant beetle yes and, um, um, people seem to have like had their 
bones are removed or something and they're all folded up. Yeah. So Very the beetle gruesome. escaped but didn't cause the catastrophe, right? I, I I couldn't make head nor tail of what happened. Is it possible that they like accidentally teleported the beetle there and also there was some kind of accident that caused them all to melt? Maybe. Seemed very um, Force Awakens the, uh, when the, the, Rath the Rathars got yeah. loose. Yeah. I got that vibe I guess too. that's that's the model now. It's probably in reference to Alien, I think. You know, alien creature getting loose in yeah. claustrophobic corridors on a spaceship. Yeah. Although it doesn't feel very alien. It just It seems like they're trying to bring other sort of inspiration from other sci-fi genres and properties into Star Trek to make it a little less stuffy. I think that's, yeah. that's that I'm not saying that that's yeah. that Star Trek is stuffy myself. Let her breathe. I'm just saying that's probably the, uh, the thinking like, Oh, you know, this is not something that's done on Star Trek, like a ravaging monster through the ship because you know, that's, mm. you know, Probably just we did. They didn't have the budget and, for it, but uh, now we can do it with computers. Right. In reference to the the stuffiness, um, when, when they first come on the ship, they see that there are guys with black badges, and of course, every Trekkie's like first thought then is going to be, "Oh God, it's Section Thirty Two, which I I imagine that Section Thirty Two will probably be involved in some way, but I I hope that this isn't like a Section Thirty Two show. I hope that we can kind of leave the, you know, 90s government conspiracy theories in the 90s. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm, I'm saying? I'm not familiar with Section 32, oh, but okay. I can sort of visualize what it probably it was, is. Yeah, it was a late season addition to Deep Space Nine where, it, you know, it turns out everything that's ever happened in the Federation was due to this shadowy conspiracy in the, you know, black ops in this dark division of the federation that has zero accountability but mm -hmm. yet you know um immense funding and, and capabilities and and competence yeah um and it's just like it's 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 dated it's the deep um, state man it's the deep state yeah and actually they did come back in Star Trek into darkness mm -hmm. i think Although I didn't recall that from watching that movie because it's just so convoluted, right? Um, but they were they were responsible for you know the whole mess in that movie as well. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's people right fans rightly pointed out on the interwebs at the time in Deep Space Nine that well that's not a very Star Trek idea, is it? Yeah. Um, so you know, look, I I guess it's all right if they bring it up a little bit, but I hope. If they do, they at least kind of try to refresh the concept somehow. Yeah. And I'd rather that they just didn't rely on it. Mm hmm. Very, very X Files. Very, uh, very, uh, I didn't, I didn't, man. I didn't take any notes on it. It might be section 31. I, mm. <laughs> I don't even remember what the number is. Section number something. That's enough. So the away mission. Is a success. I think Saru recommends um, Michael Burnham attend yeah. the away mission. They go on. They go on board. Uh, 
Did they rescue anyone or salvage anything? They rescue Burnham. Right. Who, I guess, rescues herself um, by uh, distracting the, the, the monster from eating everyone else. Yeah. Uh, what did they find over there? Not really anything. Yeah, I think they just had to to flee Pointless. for their lives. Um, mm. But they survived. Um, actually, one uh, there was run one. I think red shirt fatality. Yeah, which was not focused on at all. They scream out his name, but I don't even remember it. <laughs> it was it was a classic red shirt death moment. Yeah. I don't know if it was an actual red shirt. Uh, I forget. I don't think we have red shirts yet. No. Because they're all blue uniforms. There's also some Klingons on the ship for pretty much no reason. Yeah. Um, Just to say shh. It it added to the tension in the moment, but then it was something they had to sort of like yada yada after. Like, oh, that was just a, a scavenger party that found the ship after the fact. They had nothing to do with uh, it being derelict at the moment. Uh, so, yeah, there's a funny moment where there's a Klingon that shushes them and then gets eaten by the giant beetle. Uh, they escape the beetle, they get back to the ship, and then it turns out that the captain wants the beetle. Mm. So he has the beetle now on the uh, Discovery. Uh, and he also offers Michael Burnham a... Uh, a full position. Does is he offering Michael Burnham uh, the first officer role? No, because that's Saru's job. That's what I was gonna say. Like, is that a demotion for Saru, or no, what is no, her no. title gonna be? No, he gets to keep his job. She's just you know officer whatever. Okay, so she's she she does she's not like a specific rank. No, she's not first banana. Yeah. Lieutenant, I guess. Um, oh, uh, this is this is uh, important for you, you Trek nitpickers out there. When they went over to the ship, they went on a shuttle and they they went to warp. And this is the first instance of a warp capable shuttle uh, in the in the timeline. We had not previously had one this early, which you know. Not to say that that is a violation of canon, but it smells that way. Yeah. When was the previous earliest warp-capable shuttle? Um, I don't know that for sure, but I, I feel like it's a like late TNG thing. Maybe mm-hmm. even Voyager or DS9. Wow. You would think that it would be like difficult to pull that off. You need like a giant like warp core. Exactly, yeah. Warp cores are, like, complex. Mm-hmm. You know, it's probably TNG, because they always had that little stock plot device of, oh, we're going to a conference, and that's mm-hmm. why they're away from the ship. Right. Well... Oh, uh, anyway. I guess now there are warp-capable shuttles in this yeah. timeline. Well, you know, the, the USS Discovery is a very advanced research vessel. Mm-hmm. I still like. I feel like, you know, there have been claims that this is not a different timeline, um, but that could be bullshit. I mean, we're clearly dealing with some kind of like interdimensional fungus uh, 
we we mm. might not yet know what fully will transpire. Maybe this is a different different dimension. Maybe we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Um, anything that we did not touch on that you think needs to be discussed about contexts uh, for kings. You know, I, I think we, um, we, we hit most of the points. Uh, I have one note that the second Geneva Protocols apparently happened in 2155, which is mildly interesting, I guess. But uh, uh, that's, that's, that's more or less it for this episode. Yeah. Was the Overall, second Geneva mm, Protocol previously part of that, part of the Star Trek canon and we just didn't know when it was? Or is this a new... Oh, I don't know. I, I don't know about that, but I would imagine what it would be is in response to, you know, the, the global conflicts that presumably happened in the late 21st right. century. The eugenics wars. Yeah. So they needed uh, new rules after that point. Okay. So what do we have up next for Discovery? Um, well, well, we'll find out on Monday because I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm looking at the... Uh... Memory Alpha now looks like the man. Why are, these are ordered alphabetically? That's not helpful. That's not helpful at all. <laughs> Let's see. Um, oh, it's the next week is the butcher's knife cares not for the lamb's cry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think love that's, these titles. Yeah, I think that's probably going to be more more Klingons. Mm. Betcha. Betcha dollar. Um, so uh, overall, I, I'm I'm liking the uh, more philosophical direction. I don't want to sound too pretentious, but like mm -hmm. I'm liking that it seems to be examining uh, the ideas of of the Federation in a, a like from a different angle. Yeah, it's a little bit less utopian. Yeah, I'm hoping it doesn't get too cynical, but mm -hmm. I. I assume that it won't because they know that everyone likes Star Trek because it's optimistic. Yeah. I so think presumably when we get to the end of this thing, we'll be optimistic. The hope, I, the hope would be that it would trend towards more optimistic since clearly like the Federation is, you know, t setting aside that shadowy stuff you were talking about earlier, still considered to be like a really magnanimous and wonderful institution in like mm -hmm. TNG and stuff. Great guys. Yeah. Okay. Well, James, thanks so much for uh, joining me to talk about Star Trek Discovery. Oh, thank you. And audience, thanks for tuning in and um, hope you guys uh, stick around and check us out next time. Can't wait. All right. Cool. All right. See you later. Ciao. Bye.